Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I am delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Benjamin Barson. He is an historian, baritone saxophonist, and political activist, and currently a Fulbright Garcia Robles postdoctoral scholar in residence at the Instituto de Investigaciones Culturales Museo at the Universidad Autónoma de Baja California. From 2023 to 2025, he will be a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University in the Department of Africana Studies. His current book project, Brassroots Democracy, Maroon Ecologies, and the Jazz Commons, thinks through jazz as an Afro-Atlantic art form deeply tied to the counterplantation legacies of the Haitian Revolution and will be published by Wesleyan University Press in 2023. Also a composer, he is the recipient of the 2018 Johnny Mandel Prize from the ASCAP Foundation. Barson distributed, disturbed by the incredible oppression wrought by white supremacy and the destruction of global ecology, employs a compositional practice that draws from the deep well of revolutionary musicians within the jazz tradition. Ben, welcome to the Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. I'm really honored and excited to, to talk with you today. So you grew up in the Essex County area uh, in New Jersey and then moved back to New York a little bit later. But tell us a little bit about how your early life shaped your professional interests in um, Afro-Latin American, Afro-Latinx communities more broadly. Sure. Um, I uh, recently uh, reread uh, Juno Diaz's uh, the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, which takes place in um, some of the uh, overlapping towns and areas where I grew up. And I was just reminded of uh, not only the racial segregation and apartheid that uh, we sometimes, um, that, that much of white America takes for granted and normalizes, including in the North, um, and, but also just the rich, um, multicultural, um, Afro Latinx, um, traditions, cultures, communities, um, uh, that existed in, uh, Essex County and, and well, he writes about Patterson. I grew up in Bloomfield, uh, and Glen Ridge, but, um, yeah, we, it was a very, uh, complex, uh, contradictory and vibrant social and cultural space. Um, I uh, was in a predominantly white institution growing up as in a high school um, that was a public school, but was essentially uh, exclusive to those of upper middle class um, uh, status because of the high property values and ta property taxes, which funded the school. And um, I should uh, foreground this by acknowledging that my positionality as uh, a white man, I had, you know, I asked, I was a recipient of um, both white privilege and this kind of class demographic neighborhood privilege, but I was extremely uh, alienated by the culture I grew up in. Um, I had a really hard time uh, finding my voice, finding myself. I didn't really identify with the uh, tropes of white masculinity. I wasn't a good athlete um 
and these kind of uh, the sense of exclusion kind of compounded itself simultaneously. Um, I've discovered the saxophone when I was 10 years old and I started being exposed to um, the jazz community in the area, which was um, a really vibrant mix of um, uh, local musicians who had grown up for you know generations in Newark, New Jersey has had a really rich uh, jazz tradition, um, at least since the uh, 1950s, 60s, if not earlier. It was a big site of the Black Arts Movement and Murray Baraka, uh, uh, formerly Leroy Jones, uh, the great African-American poet, um, actually lived in Newark until his passing in 2018. And I got to meet these just incredible uh, world-class musicians, um, who some of whom had moved from New York to the, the New Jersey suburbs, um, some of whom uh, like I mentioned, we're from a sort of uh, intergenerational uh, working class community of color background and included a lot of Latin uh, Latinx musicians as well um, in this uh, milieu. Um, I, although he didn't live there, I, I remember seeing Miguel Zanon um, perform uh, at, a, at a jazz club growing up. So I started participating in these jam sessions and uh, I kind of started to break through this limited uh, world that I had been brought up in. And it really uh, saved my life in a way. I was, you know, um, I was really um, suffering from uh, a, a depression and um, anxiety. And uh, I was given kind of a new lease on life. But I felt like that came with a, uh, a sense of responsibility that um, to, to recognize uh, the crimes that had been committed against these communities um, by the communities that I resided in and that I was a part of in the name of uh, protecting privilege and wealth and uh, maintaining a system of exploitation. And so when I got to um, my undergraduate uh, ex uh, college, uh, Hampshire College, the first class I took was on the Zapatista movement in Southern Mexico made up of uh, revolutionary Mayan uh, activists who have been in existence now since 1994 and are essentially autonomous and separate from the state and organize themselves in community councils in a democratic way. And the class was as much about the Zapatistas as it was about the histories of neoliberalism, of free trade agreements um, in Mexico since 1994 that have really damaged the um, Mexican economy and specifically the ability of, of farmers and small producers to, mm -hmm. to exist. And um, I just felt very, um, I felt both implicated as a, as a white American and also uh, just like relieved that I finally had an analysis to mm -hmm. connect, um, you know, what I had been experiencing in the first person and observing um, through these, this lens of, um, uh, of, you know, New Jersey segregated life to a uh, sort of global analysis of race and power and colonialism and neocolonialism. And I decided I wanted to be a uh, activist musician. I felt mm -hmm. like that would be the, the way to go to combine these threads. So that's, that's, uh, that's my introduction story, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's, the, it's a rich journey. Um, and I know that you're you're passionate about racial justice and social movements, particularly in creating kind of new knowledge and political alliances uh, through your music and through your scholarship. So if you could tell us a little bit more about 
uh, a little bit more about why you're drawn to these areas, especially in the evolution of your work as an artist. Well, one thing I noticed uh, early on uh, in my um, in my studies at Hampshire College, we had a uh, we were asked to create a kind of mini thesis for our final year's work, and uh, I was really interested in these legacies of neocolonialism of of uh, of uneven economic development of dependency. I was really influenced by some of the dependency theorists that came out of Latin America in the 1950s and 60s. And I suppose I wanted to try to change these dynamics, uh, these, uh, in, in these unequal dynamics in the global economy that reproduce uh, structural poverty and violence across generations. Um, and I realized that despite the radical or social justice or decolonized orientation of many of the uh, writers and uh, scholars in this field, uh, I, you know, there, there was something they shared with uh, mainstream econo economists, which is that they often reduced people's well-being and agency and contribution to their GDP, to their gross domestic mm -hmm. product, or maybe their, um, uh, their, uh, uh, their um, capital per person. I forget what that statistic is called. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's no space in that analysis or there isn't much space in that analysis uh, for the legacies of music, of dance, of cultural production, mm -hmm. um, even, the, even of ideas and their ability to animate people um, kind of outside the sphere of um, raw, numeric, positivistic measurement. And at the same time, I was really struggling with finding a body of literature that connected, um, you know, music and jazz and African American music more broadly to um, legacies of revolutionary thought. Now, I, having done a PhD and spent more time in this field, and also the field itself has evolved a lot um, since 2006. Um, there, there's quite a lot of literature that, that does that work. But at the time I remember, um, asking colleagues and professors if they could point me in any direction and I often got blank stares. And so I really wanted to, to be someone that was able to, to, to connect these, these fields of, um, you know, organized grassroots movements that, that, you know, had an analysis of, of power, of race, of, um, of community, that, that were doing community mobilization on a large scale and um, the history of the music, its aesthetics, its values, its kind of phenomenologies that it created because I truly believed that uh, jazz and African-American music um, and later I would realize Afro-Latin music would, you know, had didn't just have the potential but literally did create um, new forms of knowledge and new forms of being from which a lot of social movements uh, originally found their inspiration. Um, and I started to feel that some of what I was looking at, I was, I was studying in this case, free jazz mm -hmm. and its connection to the black power movement. And I, and I realized that um, a lot of musicians, Pharaoh Sanders, John Coltrane, for instance, even Sun Ra were looking to uh, the sounds of, the decolonizing world, um, China, India, uh, in the case of Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders, um, 
before or alongside uh, their their corollaries in the civil rights and black power movements like um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were looking to um, those movements as well. And so I said, you know, this is kind of interesting <laughs> that there's this interest in the, uh, the global South and these, you know, artists that we really associate with the United States uh, and, and black United States culture, but they really had a global analysis and they were really actually looking to uh, the so-called third world uh, to create a kind of liberated decolonized aesthetic and it's happening uh, alongside or in many cases before um, folks are doing it um, in the streets and in and in and in and in meetings and in kind of these more formal mm -hmm. uh, legible types of political organizing and so um, that gave me both uh, that was really interesting to me as a scholar and also as an activist uh, it gave me kind of uh, sort of a light clicked in my head that maybe there was a a, a way to do this um, now in the in the current moment. And uh, while I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I met two uh, New York based musicians, uh, both saxophonists who were uh, you know much more experienced than I and had been um, doing this kind of work for some time of thinking through revolutionary politics and the black aesthetic. Uh, one of them was Dr. Salim Washington. Um, who's, uh, he was based in Harlem at the time. Uh, he's since been in South Africa and he's actually about to begin a job at the, uh, global jazz studies center at the university of California, Los Angeles, uh, which I'm really excited for him on that change, especially cause we'll be closer. But in, in the, when we were living in New, I was living, I moved to New York and, um, I was. Uh, working with Salim a lot, uh, as well as with an individual named Fred Ho, who was a baritone saxophonist. Salim was mostly a tenor saxophonist. And Fred uh, was a Chinese-American activist mm -hmm. who um, combined uh, elements of uh, Chinese opera and martial arts with uh, these really intricate jazz funk um, <laughs> scores. Uh, he, he developed this genre called martial arts uh, opera and um, the two of them kind of took me under their wing and we developed an organization called scientific soul sessions which uh, was a really interesting organization it had alumni of the black panther party the young lords party um, uh, uh, eco-socialists um, folks from the radical segments of the asian american movement um, Native American activists. It was just a really dynamic space. And we would have monthly events that were a hybrid of culture and politics. We would always have an event like a concert, um, a theatrical performance, and we would also have a discussion uh, afterward. And we kind of evolved to have these um, study sessions. And what was interesting about this space was that um, you know, it was sort of similar to a college class and mm -hmm. sort of our, we would take a text and we would discuss it. Um, but it was, you know, very intergenerational, interclass, um, just multi-demographic, just really an interesting, amazing space. And I remember I was 23 years old and I was just like, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I really <laughs> like, I mean, I was very intimidated, uh, to, you know, just the fact that, you know, I was hanging out with Iris Morales, who was, um, I believe she was. Uh, yeah. If she was not the head of the Young Lords at one point, she was a prominent member of it. And mm -hmm. 
um, I felt like I was in over my depth uh, at the time. And, um, but I sort of, you know, I, it was a good space for me too, to be challenged. Um, uh, the kind of expressions of whiteness and um, white supremacy that I had, you know, maintained and, and you know, internalized in, over my life. It was a good place for that to be really brought out and challenged. I feel like that's something that is somewhat missing in, in our conversations about um, anti-racism is that I, one of the things I feel strongly about is that I don't think it's possible for um, white folks to, you know, really challenge their racism only in spaces that are dominated by white folks. I think it's something that has to be a communal process that's people are held accountable collectively. And I really feel like it requires uh, a space where folks of color um, have leadership. So that was something that we believed in this particular organization. And that really helped me a lot um, figure my stuff out. And so just to kind of conclude this part, sorry, I'm kind of, no, it's no, a long, it's a long. Fascinating. Um, one thing we, we did in this group is we um, highlighted the, the work of um, radical composers, uh, black radical composers of, of yesteryear who has, whose work had been marginalized and excluded from the dominant jazz canon. And uh, we tried to combine, you know, resuscitating that work and bringing it to new audiences with also highlighting the campaigns of political prisoners, uh, folks who had been in these uh, revolutionary and radical movements in the 60s and 70s, whose campaigns had also fallen under the radar. And so, uh, for instance, we organized a campaign to free Russell Maroon Schultz, who is a Philadelphia-based Black Power activist who had been in solitary confinement for 23 consecutive years at the time that we initiated this campaign. Uh, well, there, I don't want to say initiated. There was an existing campaign. Um, I think that we brought uh, a new uh, energy and, and infrastructure to it at that time that we became involved in it, which I think was 2011. And uh, we organized a tour of the music of Cal Massey, who was uh, one of these composers I mentioned, a mentor to John Coltrane, Lee Morgan, a lot of these amazing uh, archetypal bebop figures who but Cal Massey's work had never been uh, celebrated, recorded, or distributed on a on a mass scale because he was an active uh, ally with and uh, performed concerts alongside members of the Black Panther Party. And he, in my opinion, he ranks up there with the works of Charles Mingus, Duke Ellington. It's just one of the great African American, just American composers of the 20th century. And so we performed his work, the Black Liberation Movement Suite, which is, you know, half orchestral, um, half improvised, just a really beautiful piece that combined uh, strings and a traditional jazz big band. And we organized a tour of this music alongside uh, practical campaign activity for the Russell Maroon Schultz campaign. And during this one of these legs of these tours in Vermont in 2014, uh, Russell Maroon Schultz was released from solitary confinement, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think, again, just there was a lot of folks involved in this campaign. I don't want to say that the, the music was the only thing that was relevant or mattered, but I do think that it helped us reach hundreds, if not thousands of folks who otherwise would not have learned this man's name and his work. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, so that's how um, I guess I became, you know, more 
actualized on this path of thinking through um, the the music of the Black Atlantic and uh, social movements in the current day. No, th- thank you. This is fantastic. Um, and so in that work, how do you, so certainly as a scholar, as an activist, as an artist, how do you think your work helps us or contributes to our understanding of Afro-Latinx, Afro-Latin American communities more broadly? Yeah, uh, well, um, I guess that is a good pivot to my current research project because I feel like that if is really a space where I've been thinking a lot through these connections. Um, and so one of the things that I, um, well, essentially, uh, I'll just kind of summarize what happened with this organization and then um, and then how my, my, my next kind of academic project began. Um, so both Fred Ho and Salim Washington um, uh, were interested in in you know writing and publishing and Salim continues to write and publish on this. Fred unfortunately passed away in 2014 to uh, cancer. Um, but um, both of them write, wrote and thought and discussed extensively what made jazz a revolutionary music as much for its connection to the uh, African-American communities and the black working class as to the specific types of aesthetic innovations that it was home to. Um, multi polytonality, um, the, uh, you know, the importance of the offbeat as a metaphor for the last will be first and a vision of social justice a lot of really innovative powerful thinking um unfortunately i feel like uh you know a lot of um jazz musicology hasn't really caught on it's a little bit more cautious in making those kinds of sweeping claims i suppose Mm -hmm. there's different traditions so i don't want to say that their work has been ignored but there's a kind of variant of historical musicology that is powerful in jazz historiography that doesn't really want to make it's really it's really reluctant to make those kind of more sweeping theoretical claims it'll maybe it'll quote a lot from musicians to sort of think through what they're thinking through but it won't make those arguments on its own the the role of the scholar is to be you know a vessel an objective um uh you know synthesizer of what is being discussed by the musicians or their social context of the time and so well, I thought was interesting as I, uh, I started. So Fred passed away and I moved to Pittsburgh and I started a PhD in jazz studies under the direction of Jerry Allen, who mm-hmm. unfortunately also passed away later, but I had the privilege of working with her and she uh, is an incredible, was an incredible pianist, uh, uh, composer, um, African-American pianist, composer who worked one of the few pianists who worked with Ornette Coleman, who was a saxophonist who famously did not work with pianists because he appreciated the harmonic freedom of not having a that chordal instrument, um, mm-hmm. you know, grounding him. He and apparently he felt uh, Jerry's uh, piano playing and harmonic conception was, uh, you know, was in his in his vein of thinking and playing and hearing. So that was an amazing uh development for his music actually at that time but anyway jerry was incredible and she you know encouraged us to um think really broadly about our scholarship as well as our musical contribution 
And so I was really interested in tracing uh, the sort of beginnings of jazz and their connections to broader patterns of, of liberation, of marriage, of decolonization in the Caribbean and the Latin American world. And I, um, I was convinced that the argument that Salim Washington and Fred Ho were making in their various speeches and performances and salons um, had historic merit that there was actually um, like a long genealogy of, of resistance out of which these emancipatory aesthetics were forged and created um, over generations amongst millions of folks across time and space. And so I went where a lot of folks go when they try to <laughs> think through the early period of early jazz. I, I went to New Orleans. I went to the Hogan Jazz Archive um, with a um, uh, with a generous grant provided by the uh, Tulane University, and I was able to access some really interesting interviews and archives uh, in their Hogan Jazz Archive, which has a really extensive oral history collection. And one thing I found really interesting um, was that there was a lot of um, connection to Haitian culture in early jazz that hadn't really been that commented on. The, there's uh, uh, the, the work of um, Douglas Henry Daniels does discuss um, connections of Haiti and, and early jazz and also Thomas Ferrier, but uh, there's, there's really two isolated articles that do that. There's no real long form monograph and, you know, there's hundreds of other texts that just don't address this at all. And so one thing I found was actually the mother of a well-known jazz clarinetist named George Lewis, who is not to be confused with George Lewis, who is a ex African-American experimental uh, composer and trombonist who teaches at Columbia University right now. There is also a George Lewis clarinet player who is a dock worker. Uh, African-American dock worker and um, and associated with the uh, uh, early jazz revival in the 1950s. But anyway, his mom played, uh, uh, or his mom sang a song when she was being interviewed. Uh, the, the interviewers were interested in his mom, whose name is Alice Zeno, because she uh, remembered her mom singing Senegambian songs when she was growing up. Uh, apparently her grandmother, um, had come from Western Senegambia, was a forced enslaved migrant from that region. And they were interested if they could find some sort of connection, you know, Afro, Af you know, direct African connection to early jazz. Mm -hmm. But the only song she could sing was a song from Haiti. And uh, this is just so funny because they, they're really uh, like kind of upset. The interviewers are like, uh -huh. okay, thanks for that Haitian song, but do you know any African songs, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And I thought that was a really powerful metaphor for uh, a lot of jazz historiography, you know, that, um, and, and the kind of New Orleans history that, um, you know, I think there is a really strong, you know, West African component to this music. Um, and, uh, but I think that sometimes the way that we think about, um, and the way that this, the, the sort of the Afrocentric narrative is deployed, which I think is really important. I'm not knocking it whatsoever. Um, but I think we forget sometimes, and that's when we tell that story, 
um, this, this is that Congo Square mm -hmm. preserved these West African traditions. We forget that a lot of African history was happening right then and there in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And maybe the most consequential um, part of that history was the Haitian Revolution, where, um, you know, 300, you know, up to 300 different languages and ethnic groups um, from West and Central Africa uh, managed to uh, create a coherent social, political, uh, military movement that overthrew the most powerful or, you know, potentially, you know, depending on how you look at it, the most or second most powerful empire of that time, literally defeated Napoleon's armies, uh, defeated the British and Spanish uh, counter invasions, uh, consolidated a republic. Um, of course, you know, the history of post-revolutionary Haiti is complicated and Toussaint Louverture um, was complicit in the continuation of the plantation system. And there are a lot of contradictions. I don't, um, but I don't think that's really so relevant for um, the larger point, which is that um, this history of Haiti also happened in New Orleans, not just symbolically and not just imaginatively, um, but as we can see with the song that Alice Zeno sang, um, that it actually, uh, was reproduced there because of the passage of, of both cultural material as well as human beings. Uh, New Orleans's population doubles uh, between the time of the Louisiana, between the time of the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, the Louisiana Purchase, and finally 1811 when the last wave of migrants from Saint Domingue, later Haiti, arrive in New Orleans. It, mm -hmm. it literally doubles with a wave of migrants that um, come from Haiti. I don't want to call them refugees because um, many of them were enslaved forced mm -hmm. migrants who had been basically ripped from their emancipation uh, in, in, um, in Haiti, uh, one third of them to be precise. And mm -hmm. this population first, many of them travel to um, Santiago de Cuba, where they, um, many of them, uh, stay there permanently, um, both planters and enslaved folks and free people of color. Some of the free folks of color are unfortunately re-enslaved uh, when they arrive there. Some of them aren't. It's very complicated um, history that's been told extensively by folks like Rebecca Scott. Um, and uh, they apparently really dramatically changed the culture of uh, Santiago de Cuba and Eastern Cuba more broadly, uh, not only is uh, sugar plantations, not only did sugar plantations start to proliferate, but also specific types of medicinal herbs and uh, musical legacies, most notably what's called the tumba francesa, mm -hmm. which literally means French dance, but uh, French here is uh, monkier or a, a code for, for Haitian or, or mm -hmm. French Caribbean. Um, the, contra, the French contra dance, uh, which later, which contains rhythms like the cinquillo, uh, which becomes the habanera, later becomes the foundation of danzon um, or Cuban danza and then danzon. And basically uh, every um, Afro-Cuban popular cultural form has some kind of connection uh, with the rhythms and aesthetics that this specific group introduces. And many of these folks also end up moving to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, also, many of them involuntary migrants and some of them planters who were hoping to retain their status as masters in the United States. And so these folks travel with 
musical information, with cultural information, and also with a knowledge of resistance and revolution. In fact, uh, the German Coast Uprising in 1811 uh, happens right as this refugee wave is, or not this, this wave of migrants uh, is concluded. And it's the largest uprising of enslaved people in United States history. And uh, Charles de Slonde was um, rumored to be um, uh, an enslaved migrant from Saint-Domingue or Haiti. And so uh, there's a historian, uh, a late historian, Julia Scott, who talks about what he calls the common wind, this circuit, this clandestine circuit of, of communication uh, between the plantation Americas and slave folks on plantations, um, free people of color, or also uh, or, or, or urban enslaved people who had a little bit more mobility at times, and also maroons, and and um, both on land and at sea, and how these three different groups of of um, folks in the Afro-Atlantic passed on information about resistance uh, about weaknesses in the plantation system about political developments in Europe that maybe contained apertures to freedom and how how important this information was not just the content of this information but the mere fact that this information was being circulated mm -hmm. or tended to this expansive transnational uh afro-atlantic culture and that was as much political well my argument is that that culture was as much political as it was cultural and sonic and, and embodied and performative and yes. that and so that's really where i'm coming at looking at the development of jazz is as a continuation of that process that has a lot to do with aesthetics and histories of um of social movements of revolt of of, of real agency of um i don't even think common people <laughs> captures um you know the terrifying barbarity and apocalyptic violence of the plantation system in the enslaved Americas. But for lack of a better unifying phrase, this the agency of common folks in this time period to create new cultures and new meanings, uh, specifically through music. And um, that song that Alizano sang was a song of, uh, of revolution and, and change in, in post-emancipation Haiti, actually. So, that was something I really honed in on. And I think my larger argument was that jazz is, of course, an African-American form, but I think African-America spills past the national boundaries of the United States empire. And actually, that was something that John Coltrane taught me in his uh, explorations of Indian music. And it was something that Fred Ho and Salim Washington taught me in their explorations of um, East Asian and African music, respectively. And so I, you know, I was already attuned to this idea that uh, the music could sometimes transcend national divisions and these sort of imposed boundaries when sometimes human beings couldn't. And, and I think, you know, this is a different way of listening to and thinking of jazz that really centers uh, the Afro-Latinx contributions as opposed to saying that they were sort of a secondary aspect of it. Uh, the other things I looked at were Afro-Cuban and Cuban migrants to New Orleans. Um, the the solidarity extended to Afro-Louisianans uh, by the Mexican government, which after it abolished slavery in 1829, it abolished slavery a few times earlier, but that's when Vincente Guerrero, who was Mexico's second president and also had African heritage, um, finally, you know, really uh, put it in the constitution and it was you know made official um 
Mexico begins recruiting um, Afro Texans and Afro Louisianans to build a buffer state against um, white Texans, which it was it was well aware of that they that the Mexican state was well aware that they were organizing a, a potential revolt to expand slavery. And unfortunately, the Mexican state was right, and the and the Texan slaveholder rebellion did take place, which led to the what's called the War of Northern Aggression in Mexico. But even in this case, um, hundreds, if not thousands, of um, of uh, formerly enslaved people who liberated themselves and free people of color, um, you know, fought in different ways for the Mexican Republic, either writing in newspapers in New Orleans or in some cases actually defecting to the Mexican army. Um, so as it turned out, two jazz musicians uh, uh, were a generation of, of jazz musicians were born in um, a commune of, of African descended peoples in Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, those included the Tio family who were clarinetists who were probably the first um, jazz clarinet. Lorenzo Tio Jr. was probably the first jazz clarinetist in New Orleans. And um, he, his parents had been born, or his father had been born in a commune in Veracruz. And so there's this really interesting connection to Mexico and specifically Mexico's connection to the Black Atlantic as well, which is why I was really interested in your work, Michelle, and how you looked at um, uh, Afro-Cuban exiles um, in the Gulf region of Mexico in the in the 1840s um, in the year of the lash. But anyway, I I'm kind of speaking a lot on this. I'm sorry. I'm really you know I'm re I'm really deep in the I'm, yeah. I'm, this is this is the topic of um, Brassard's democracy. Um, this is the book that'll be coming out. So yeah, um, no, I'm I'm looking forward to to reading that and also just in, in thinking about all this work you've been doing on. Um, social revolutionary movements, social movements, and the and the historically, but also in the present, I wonder if you could say a little bit about what you think are the most some of the most urgent issues facing Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latinx, um, African American communities today, and how they relate to your work. Yeah, I mean, I th one thing that's really strong here, being in currently, I'm in the northern border of Mexico. I'm in the northmost city in Mexico, which is Mexicali, and. Uh, it's a major uh, transit space for a lot of migrants from Latin America and the Caribbean who are um, hoping to move to the United States. And there's quite a lot of Haitians here. They've actually developed uh, their own businesses and communities. Some of them opt or are forced to stay in Mexicali. And uh, I've, you know, anecdotally and in a more organized way, um, communicated with some of them and tried to get to know them. Oftentimes the folks I get to know um, end up moving to uh, places like Everett in Massachusetts. So they do successfully move to the United States. So um, uh, it's the nature of being in a border city. But um, yeah, I really feel like Haiti has been kind of abandoned by, um, by us. You know, I think it's, um, we don't really, I don't know who we is in this conversation that I'm speaking of. Of course, many of us do think about Haiti and do, you know, study Haiti and it's not, mm -hmm. I don't mean to, you know, no, I know it, what you mean, but it's, you know, I think about Aristide and uh, his two presidencies, which both ended in coups, um, which both had the fingerprints of direct United States involvement 
um, including it appears that the United States State Department may have actually flown Aristide directly to Sierra Leone in the second coup. And I think about the the Miami uh, assassins who assassinated a recent Haitian head of state and um, the, who are based in Miami. And I think, I just think about the, 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 the really predatory behaviors of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and how they um, forced Haiti's economy to, to restructure, to allow the importation of, of uh, extremely cheap rice produced in the United States and, um, and other commodities and how even Bill Clinton said that was his biggest regret. Um, uh, acknowledging the mass uh, structural violence to Haitian farmers. And I think about Haiti in the 19th century and how it, it actually had the largest population growth in the entire Caribbean. It uh, multiplied five times over. Mm-hmm. Um, and just what a thriving, self-sufficient society it was, um, specifically because it was uh, there was not a strong centralized state, that it was it really was a republic of... Um, it's what John Henry and Gonzalez in his recent work called a maroon nation, um, where uh, small markets and independent production uh, really were the, the, the mode of production for the vast majority of the country. And um, I just feel like, you know, this country, which has contributed so much to the cause of emancipation in the Americas that really forced other Latin American revolutionary leaders especially Simon Bolivar to put anti-slavery directly on the agenda and not as sort of a, uh, and not maintain uh, plantation slavery like happened in the United States revolution against England um, has really been abandoned by, um, you know, in our, in our contemporary radical imagination, I don't see Haiti being a topic of conversation Um in in day-to-day anti-racist uh twitter spaces for instance Mm -hmm. and um you know i i'm really saddened by that i don't know what we can do about that but i do feel like unfortunately there is an american centricism that permeates some of what we do here in the united states and it's something that uh folks here in mexico are very sensitive to i mean they're um i'm in a you know I'm in probably the closest type of uh, space that you could call a kind of decult, you know, I'm in the closest institution. I'm in an institution has the closest thing to a decolonial perspective that you'll find in Baja California. I think the Instituto de Investigaciones Culturales, the the Institute for Cultural Investigation or Studies uh, really comes out of the legacy of cultural studies developed by, um, you know, Stuart Hall, and the Birmingham School in the 1970s, but includes a lot of really critical Latin American decolonial thought. And, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, they, they're, you know, they're, they're constantly reminding me, you know, we cite you guys all the time, but I mean, we feel like you were never cited, <laughs> you know, we're never mm-hmm. invited to these spaces and there's language barriers and there's sort of the, the, you know, Eng- the Anglophonic English centric nature of academic international production but you know there's also something there's also just sort of a unspoken assumption that you know we don't need to care about these institutions in the global south because they're not you know like they're not going to necessarily help my 
uh, CV or they're not, you know, and again, I'm, I'm speaking in broad terms. There's some amazing conferences. There's, I mean, the Caribbean Philosophical Association has done, uh, you know, great conferences in the Caribbean. And, and I, I don't mean to, you know, LASA, you know, has also done great work and I'm sure there's so many I don't know about. So I don't want to speak from a place of ignorance, but I just, I just feel like, um, in this wave of neocolonial violence against uh, states like Haiti and Venezuela, um, you know, I really think that we need to foreground the sort of international solidarity that groups like the Black Panther Party really put forward, where we're not just fighting uh, institutional racism, we're fighting an empire that um, that institutionalizes race in a kind of colonial uh, framework uh, across uh, continents and across generations. And we really have to be intentional about linking the local to the global because, um, you know, <laughs> as Martin Luther King Jr. said, I feel kind of corny uh, quoting him, but um, an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. And um, power amassed by our enemies in one space gives them the ability to build cop city in Atlanta here. And I just think that you know, if we're not thinking globally and we're not thinking about these legacies, we're not going to be able to build these strong movements to change society in our own country. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I guess I am really marked by the experience of the Haitians I've met here, um, some of whom were music teachers um, outside of Port-au-Prince and um, who I've tried to help attain musical instruments. And it's just been so complicated, um, their living situation. Um, them, you know, having to learn Spanish and then English if they make it to the United States. I mean, it's just, I mean, just the intensity of the, the migratory experience, the time they've spent on foot and at sea um, or by air, it's just been, yeah, it's just uh, really humbling and um, harrowing. And so I, I, I just think there's a way for us to talk about this that, um, that needs to be more pronounced and, and, and up and center. And it's, it's not just a migration crisis, right? It's a produced outcome of decades of policies that have made this happen. In fact, recently, uh, House Democrats wrote a letter to Biden saying, hey, let's lay up on the sanctions in Venezuela, um, not to not to link Venezuela and Haiti as if they're a single entity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I thought this letter was interesting that House Democrats wrote a letter to Biden connecting the sanctions against Venezuela to the wave of migrants. It was sort of like uh, admission mm -hmm. uh, at some level of members of the United States government that, you know, we are responsible for producing this crisis on some level, right? That we are, um, that this isn't an outcome of intentional policies that have been, you know, years in the making. And so, um, yeah, I think that we need to fight for, if we have the privilege of being in the United States, um, I think we really need to figure out ways to connect um, kind of more space-based community-led social movements to international solidarity um, with our, um, with our, uh, I want to say brothers and sisters. I, I'm trying to think of another noun, but yeah, with our, with our friends that we don't know yet um, uh, in, in uh, across Latin America. And um, I guess one other thing I'll say quickly is um one thing that's hard, been hard for me to reconcile in Mexico is the discourse of mestizaje and um, the legacies of anti-blackness. And um, it's interesting. I've been following a lot of folks in Colombia who are doing um, 
really powerful race-based, uh, you know, work around anti-blackness and, um, yeah, I guess it's, I'm not really sure how to relate to this work in Mexico. Um, I am friends with some, uh, really interesting, um, scholars from Cuba here. One of whom is, um, of Afro-Cuban is Afro-Cuban. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a blind, a blindness for, <clears throat> Uh, the experience of blackness in Mexico. And that's one of the things my work tries to address. And I guess I'm curious, I'm curious of trying to work through, you know, what, you know, what is unique about Latin America um, in terms, and, and of course, Latin America encompasses everywhere from Brazil to Haiti, to Mexico, to Argentina. It's not, you know, it's very difficult to paint with a sweeping brush. And yet at the same time, um, there are, there is a different history of race uh, that comes out of different differential histories of of slavery and also you know of emancipation and of patterns of migration and social movements and Absolutely. in some cases campaigns of genocide and whitening as in the case of Argentina and so um, how do we connect that to to some of the important interventions made by Black Studies critical Black Studies in Africana studies based in either the United States or the English speaking world and how do they relate or how, how can they be translated, uh, not just, you know, linguistically, but also culturally and sociopolitically into Latin America. I think that's something that I've been trying to think about and it's hard and I, I don't really have an answer for it right now. Um, but, um, I do think there's resistance on the folk part of some folks here to have those things copy and pasted as there should be, because, um, to do otherwise would be to say, yes, we, you know, we, we, we accept your expert knowledge American, um, on our racial formations. You know, I don't think that's the right position either, but sometimes I do feel like there is a unprocessed anti-blackness that's at the heart of that defensive positioning. So, um, yeah. I think, I think that that's a question that's quite urgent, um, as much in Mexico as in other um, countries, as well as for scholars like us who are based in the United States. Absolutely. Um, and then kind of our final question I would like to ask everyone is, um, in addition to the work that you're doing, uh, what other specific resources would you recommend to people who want to learn more about this? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. I, uh, and thanks for giving it to me earlier. <laughs> um, um, you know, I would say, you know, listening to the music is a great place to start and finish and continue uh, that, you know, I always put the music first and I always listen to the music first. I'm really inspired by the work of Arturo O'Farrell or O'Farrell, um, who is a uh, pianist that I had the privilege and uh, pleasure of working with in New York for some time uh, in his organization, the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, um, which uh, does uh, work in the Bronx and Brooklyn, uh, working with um, uh, predominantly Afro-Latin youth, uh, bringing um, just incredible uh, jazz musicians to these uh, schools that sometimes don't have music programs of their own. Um, but anyway, Arturo did this amazing project called Fandango at the Wall, and he brought musicians from his own orchestra, the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, 
um, with musicians here in Baja California, including some in Mexicali where I am and others in Tijuana to perform with folks on the other side of the wall um, to really make visible both the colonial violence of this uh, wall where thousands of um, migrants die annually, um, either crossing the Sonoran Desert uh, or um, are abused by border patrol after crossing in spaces like Nogales, Arizona. Um, not only highlighting that institution, it's, it's raw physicality, uh, its ability to separate and divide uh, communities that have been there for hundreds, if not or more years, but also um, the ability of music and uh, culture to create alternative forms of citizenship and belonging that transcend those institutions and transcend those kind of racialized geographies and uh, imaginations. And so, um, yeah, like I mentioned, you know, there are musicians from Los Angeles, from Tijuana, from New York, um, you know, from across Mexico and Latin America and the United States who performed on both sides and, and, and uh, you know, created music and the tradition of, uh, and the Fandango tradition coming out of so the San Jarocho tradition of Veracruz, which itself is a fascinating uh, Afro-Latinx musical form, uh, which paints to the power of, the, the, power of, of um, the, the African presence in, in, in Mexico, specifically the Gulf Coast. And mm -hmm. so I just think it's an amazing project that uh, really brings the dynamics that I've been interested in kind of looking at in the 19th century and the early 20th century into focus today that these these ten these these uh this ability of the music to imagine new ontologies new belongings um through organized sound and dance and movement is not something that kind of happens accidentally or after the fact it's, it's exactly that uh imagination beyond racial capitalism where these aesthetics are born and created that they 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 they, they serve a uh, a purpose and maybe that's a little bit functionalist or something but i don't think it's functionalist i think it's 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 very imaginative the music itself these aesthetics these forms of being it's very creative it's very hard to create a musical language that can cut across so much difference right and it, it took a lot of effort not just from arturo and not just from san Jorocho, san Jorocho practitioners and not just from early jazz practitioners, but the entire history of forced migration to the Americas uh, during the Af yeah, during the transatlantic slave trade and the various dislocations um, of indigenous communities and and outright uh, uh, outright um, genocide um, within this cradle of modernity and its rampant violence there's this incredible cry of a new world being born and that's the music that we call music today that's popular music that's anything with a drum set that's anything with a two and four in the backbeat um, that's anything that's based in the blues or pentatonic scale i mean that's literally all of popular music anything that has its roots in hip-hop um or salsa or anything that we listen to that we call popular mm -hmm. music today comes out of that experience it comes out of that dream and so i think starting with the music um the work of france francis um aparis um apari aparicio uh -huh. uh, the work of francis aparicio listening to salsa gender latin popular music and puerto rican cultures is a great work i've been re reading recently 
um, which thinks through uh, the connection between the counterplantation and um, the work of La Lupe and just all kinds of really Celia Cruz and kind of puts these things in dialogue with each other. Um, yeah, there's just so much good work out there right now. I'm sorry, I should have uh, had a list no. of books ready to go. Um, uh, the um, yeah, I would I would continue to look out for books by Celine Washington. Um, you know, his thinking on the black aesthetic has been foundational to me. Um, the work of um, Ingrid Monson, who is a mm -hmm. scholar of um, jazz and freedom dreams of um, of Robin D.G. Kelly, who has recently written a book on uh, jazz and the imagination of Africa, of jazz speak jazz speaks Africa answers, but also with a sort of social movement, musician centered perspective. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of really. I really feel like we're living through a renaissance of this kind of critical uh, music studies, jazz studies approach. Um, I also want to say that uh, we. I'm part of a, a musical collective called the Afro Yaki Music Collective, uh, which um, my partner, uh, he's Elzanath Rodriguez, is of Yaki descent and uh, working with um, uh, musicians from uh, uh, the African diaspora as much in the United States as in continental Africa, as in the Caribbean. Um, we wanted to create a space that sort of symbolized and thought through solidarities between original peoples in the Americas and uh, and the Afro-Atlantic. And, uh, and so this collective um, tries to symbolize those connections and, and make them real through music, through um, large scale performance works. Uh, we recently released a, a jazz opera called Mirror Butterfly, the Migrant Liberation Movement Suite, which uh, is based on a text is, is it, the text of this of this work was based on interviews with three living activists, uh, one based in Tanzania, who was formerly in the Black Panther Party named Mama C, who does a lot of amazing community work in Tanzania um, with hip hop and plays a variety of um, African string instruments like the Niyati. Um, we also interviewed a Yaki activist, Rene Lourdes Anguamea, who's the director of the um, the the Museum of the Yaquis um, in Sonora. The Yaquis are, uh, the Yaqui people are people that resisted colonialism for over 500 years and were only uh, really defeated in a formal sense by the government of Porfirio Diaz in post-independence Mexico. And it was a really brutal war that um, in many ways um, had no parallel in, in Mexican history. Um, and they continue to fight for their rights to the Yaki River, which is an incredibly important resource that's been compared to the Nile in Egypt, because not only because it's a river that runs through an otherwise desert region, but because it is home to a number of unique species that will go extinct without its continued protection. And unfortunately, it has been um, diverted and irrigated for beer factories and car factories in um, larger cities up north. Um, of where the Yaquis reside. So the point of this album was to, and this this musical production, this theater production, uh, this jazz opera was to was to draw attention to the to their struggles, um, both of Mama C's and, and Tanzania, 
um, of the Yaqui community in Sonora and also of the Kurdish women's movement in um, Kurdistan, which is a, a kind of complicated and amazing uh, space because the Kurdish women's movement have really built a powerful uh, alternative to patriarchy in the middle of the Middle East, uh, def defeated ISIS a number of times and built a democratic cooperative economy. And we wanted to put these movements in dialogue with each other to not only um, to, to think to rethink migration and its causes, and also to think about um, how we can support activists living in, in, in um, parts of the global south, which historically, uh, you know, do uh, are where a lot of migrants come from. And so um, I will I'm going to share one of the songs from from our from this from our collective, the Afriyaki Music Collective. The song is called Sister Soul, and it features Mama C. And um, and she's the one that's uh, uh, doing the spoken word intervention. And it also features uh, Yang Jin, who's an incredible pipa player, uh, was based in Pittsburgh, now is in New Jersey, who's um, toured with Yo-Yo Ma and, and other folks in the Silk Road Ensemble. And so anyway, thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, I don't know if you have any other questions, but it's been so great to talk and build with you today. I really appreciate you inviting me onto the program. And, um, you know, thank you for creating a space, not just for me, but for so many other um, amazing scholars and helping expand uh, what Afro-Latinidad um, means today. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your perspective, uh, your passion for this work. And we look forward to, uh, to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues on Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>